episode 379 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our families, our friends, our pets. Maybe not even ours three weeks from today. Yeah. Joining us for the News Roundup, Tatiana Bolton, who's been on just once before. Uh, she's the policy director for R Street Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats team. Tatiana, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're glad to do it. Uh, and Nate Jones, back after a uh, month of uh, literally toiling in the vineyards. Uh, Nate, the nice thing about doing the Cyber Law Podcast is you can sit down the whole time. <laughs> exactly. I'm glad to have a little break from some manual labor. So it's good to be back, Stuart. Thank you. And Dmitry Alperovich, who is the co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator and the founder or funder of the Johns Hopkins Alperovich Institute on Cybersecurity. Dimitri, I missed your, your rollout. I apologize. I had a client who scheduled something right in the middle of it. But tell us what the Alperovich Institute is going to be doing with Johns Hopkins. Yeah, very excited. So this is going to be part of the SICE School, the School of International Affairs, one of the top international affairs schools in the world. And we're going to have the Alperovich Institute for Cybersecurity Studies there, led by Dr. Thomas Ridd, one of the premier scholars in the field. And really, it's going to be at this intersection of geopolitics, cybersecurity, technology policy, which I think is very much needed. A lot of people that studied cybersecurity, myself included, have spent much of their time focused on the technical details, the bits and bytes. And while that's important, policy is becoming more and more critical to understanding cyber issues and to trying to resolve them. I've always believed that we don't have a cyber problem. We have a China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea problem. So understanding those adversaries, their motivations, their capabilities, and their history is so critical to understanding with how to deal with those actors. So that was really the reason for launching this institute. We're going to be offering classes starting next fall with a master's degree program, a PhD program, and there'll be an executive education component as well for senior leaders in the private sector and in the government. So very excited about this. Uh, to your listeners, I know you have an illustrious group of people listening to the show. I would love for them to get involved as guest lecturers, maybe even adjunct professors, professors at the Institute. We're trying to really bring the best uh, minds here in D.C. to teach um, the next generation. Okay. Well, we I hear from law students who also listen to this. And so if they want, if they don't think they've gotten enough education uh, on these issues, SICE would be and the Alperovich Institute would be a great place to go. You're right. Thomas Ritt has been doing this for a long time. And you, I think when you were at CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike was the first big security company just to say, oh yeah, it's the Russians. Let's get serious. Uh, and so you've always been prepared to say, we have a Russia problem, we have a China problem, and to back it up when other people were afraid to do that. Cyber is geopolitics. Uh, and uh, for people that want to learn more, applications start December 15th for, for the next uh, school year. All right. Sounds good. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for the day. Why don't we start with some geopolitics? The U.S. got 30-some countries uh, on a Zoom call and said, we got to do something about ransomware. Notable among the people who were not, the countries that were not on that call was Russia. And they came out with a document that I think I could have written beforehand. Probably they did write it beforehand. And it says some good things about disrupting cyberware, ransomware and working together and using criminal authorities. I don't know what, Dimitri, it's 
you couldn't have expected too much more for this from this, but I it doesn't really tell us whether the U.S. has managed to get people to agree to do something new and uh, effective about ransomware. Yeah, so I think this was actually a pretty important summit. You had um, 31 nations come together and also European Union and at a pretty senior level. So you had ministers, deputy ministers attending this meeting. And the primary goal for the administration, I think, was to simply elevate the priority of ransomware within each of those um, nations and to try to get them to take it seriously and focus on a number of different areas. So one track was law enforcement, how to more aggressively investigate cybercrime more broadly and ransomware more, more specifically and collaborate with the U.S. But the other issues I think were even more important, which is how do we deal with the, the cryptocurrency situation that really fuels this ransomware epidemic? Uh, a lot of these exchanges, particularly the, the problematic ones, are not based in the U.S. So how do you make sure that they're all doing KYC and AML globally? And how do you get those countries potentially to not um, just enforce that within their own borders, but to also start banning payments from their own financial institutions going to exchanges that are sort of rogue and not collaborating with law enforcement, not doing KYC, not doing AML. And then the third area was uh, disruption, thinking through how do you do joint disruptive operations against ransomware groups, something that I wrote about uh, a few weeks ago in the New York Times op-ed about the need to go more aggressively against ransomware groups with cyber offensive capabilities. Really important to bring the allies into this. A lot of them have tremendous capabilities and some of them are even less constrained than we are from a legal regime perspective about doing things like the UK, for example, or the Dutch. So I, I thought it was very productive. The statement that was put out, you have to understand, was watered down to make sure that you have 31 nations and the EU could sign on to it. So, you know, you have players like Brazil and Argentina and others there that obviously won't be as aggressive as some of the other countries. But the fact that we elevated the discussion and got these countries start focusing on the problem, I think was a good thing. Nate, what do you think? Uh, is there something here? I tend to agree with Dimitri. I mean, I think the the big next steps that we have to focus on, though, are figuring out how to take this beyond a statement and turn it into real coordinated action and make sure that these 31 countries remain motivated to do something about this. That's number one. And the second one is to figure out how to address the elephant that wasn't in the and figure out how to leverage these enforcement actions, disruptive actions, and things like that, and get to some of these hard-to-reach places where a lot of this problem is emanating from. I think it was smart not to have Russia there. They've proved not to be a, a productive interlocutor in these kinds of uh, situations. And so I think it, there's no sense in trying to get them to agree to this or, or to believe that it's going to have much effect if they do. And I think we now have to focus on how to get them to change their behavior. And if they don't, for um, these countries to, to take actions to disrupt it on their own. Okay, so I, this is not completely fair, and you can tell me if it's not fair, but I ask you or Dimitri to tell me one thing that 31 nations could do effectively that isn't being done now on this topic. I think they could institute sanctions against any cryptocurrency exchange globally that's not doing KYC and ML. Cut them off from okay. the global financial system. All right. And, and I, you're right. Uh, they're not doing that. And the U.S. would probably do that and it would be unilateral and it wouldn't be as effective. So, OK, good start. All right. Let's let's move along to uh, the ever popular topic of regulating Silicon Valley. There were the Wall Street Journal, which is just 
unbridled in its enthusiasm for regulating tech companies because it's lost so much advertising revenue to them. Uh, but to that, it had a long, and uh, as with all of these Wall Street Journal articles, moderately persuasive uh, study suggesting that tech companies were self-preferencing, which is... Uh, not what you might think if you watched too much Seinfeld to master of your domain uh, discussion, but uh, I, a, 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 a tactic in which companies subtly or unsubtly give preferences in search in particular to companies that they and products that they have a profit interest in. Uh, Wall Street Journal did that and the markup did one all pretty elaborately justified uh, using actual data from actual product searches. And the notion is that having found this, it's improper. It puts a lot of small businesses out of business in the long run. And therefore, companies like Amazon and Google should be prohibited from preferencing products that they have a, pro a profit tie to. Dimitri, what's your thinking about this? This is a regulation that doesn't cut very much on partisan lines. You could imagine Republicans buying into this as much as Democrats. Yeah, I think there's no question that the big platform companies are doing that and they're enriching themselves and expanding their monopolies. The problem with dealing with it with an existing law, and you know this much better than I do since I'm not a lawyer, Stuart, is that the, the, the thesis for anti-monopoly legislation in the U.S. has been proving harm to the consumer in the case of rising prices or less competition. And it's really hard to make that case with what these platform companies are doing because they're offering you arguably a better service and certainly- And sometimes better prices, yeah. And better prices and often doing it uh, free for free, like Facebook is providing a service for free because of advertising. So it's hard to say that consumer is being directly impacted, at least now you can make the case that over the long term, there'll be less competition. And as these monopolies kind of get rid of all their competitors, they can raise prices, but it's a hypothetical that is hard to prove in the US law. The Europeans are much more lenient. They don't have that, that threshold um, that you have to clear. So I do think broadly aligning our uh, anti-monopoly legislation with that thinking that it's not all about prices and direct impact to the consumer. There is sort of a healthiness of the ecosystem that you have to worry about when it comes to what these huge tech companies are doing. I think that's a positive. I wouldn't just focus on these self-preferences. I, I would look at broader fix to the monopoly legislation to deal with th this new reality. Yeah, although this narrow rifle shot it doesn't get into a lot of the more difficult uh, antitrust issues. So it, it has it, it has some possibility. None of these bills going anywhere fast because the tech companies are pulling out all the stops to lobby against them. And it's, it's micro-targeted lobbying. I'm sure that there's a national security case against regulating self-referencing, that there's a diversity and equity case against self-referencing legislation, and it's being made across Capitol Hill by different representatives of these firms. Although bashing tech companies these days is a bipartisan endeavor. Yes. And super yes. fun. <laughs> well, okay, Tatiana, uh, welcome to the conversation. Uh, the other regulation that, that is getting a lot of attention is algorithmic regulation. And again, people are kind of struggling to find something on which maybe Republicans and Democrats could agree. And at least some of these algorithmic regulations have bipartisan appeal. Where does the 
algorithmic regulation movement stand? Well, so I think broadly speaking, let me take it back a step. Both of these stories about both of these stories about the new regulations that are being proposed on the Hill paint a broader picture that the Hill and just any regulatory entities are having trouble figuring out exactly what the problem is that they are trying to regulate against and then the right answer to that problem. So I think overall, we really need to figure out exactly what we have an issue with, right? Is it harm to the consumer? Is there some sort of bias that we want to regulate against in terms of algorithms or issues with hate speech? Is it is it the advertising model that we have a problem with? Because there's a proposal to reinstate sort of like a Glass-Steagall for, for internet companies. There just seem to be a lot of these bills, like a lot of antitrust legislation. And my biggest problem with it is that there's just no no strategy, no real identification of the issues. I think the majority of it is based on uh, particular gripes on uh, one side or the other. Both sides, obviously, clearly have but, but issues. Don't you, don't you think the fundamental problem people have with the big tech companies is they helped elect Trump in 2016 and then helped unelect him in 2020. So the Republicans are mad about 2020. The Democrats are still mad about 2016. They want to hit these guys, but obviously they're not going to be able to write legislation that prevents them from doing what they did in 2016 or what they did in 2020 and get bipartisan support for it. So they are about kind of pinpricks. They're saying, we don't believe these guys. We don't trust them anymore. None of us do. Give us something where we cannot trust them bipartisanly and we'll pass it. But I, that, that's, I think that's the dynamic. And the question is, what things fall into that category? Right. And I think so. I think you're right. It's a, it, there's political reasons that right now Facebook's in the crosshairs. And I, I think there is sort of bipartisan anger at them. So this algorithmic discussion is about the invisible hand that's moving your your best friend's wedding posts up and keeping other content lower down. When we're talking about hate speech, this leads to problems where, you know, certain content is allowed to allowed to go around Facebook, even though they sometimes they can take it down. They're, you know, they're talking about algorithms, their algorithm is reducing the likelihood that someone on Facebook will see all this. And so the Hill is trying to regulate that. I think there's broadly, there's big problems with the Hill trying to tell Facebook how to run algorithms, because I think the Hill is the last person who should be told, who should tell anybody how to actually run algorithms. They're they're not particularly smart on tech. They're not cybersecurity experts. I also would point out that in this in these uh, antitrust bills, there's significant concerns for me on cybersecurity provisions. And so I think there's just problems all over the place. I, I'm not sure whether we're actually going to get any one of these bills through because when you put ideas on paper, they inevitably become uh, more concrete. And once they become more concrete, more critics arrive, you know, come out. So to be seen whether any of this passes, but I think they're, we're going, they're going to keep going until they get something. Yeah. And I, I, look, I, 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 I've expressed my impatience in the past with the argument that, oh, Finsta, you don't understand the technology, series of tubes, and therefore you're discredited for trying to write legislation here. Congress doesn't know a lot about 
anything. They're, they're smart people, but they can't know everything. But we don't say, oh, you shouldn't have written legislation to deal with the abuses that were emerged after the crash in 2008, because none of you have made a fortune uh, in the stock market, and therefore you're incompetent. Of course, they're incompetent, but they know how to get advice. And we, should, we shouldn't say that's the reason they can't do algorithmic uh, regulation. The bigger problem, to my mind, is that most algorithmic regulation is tells people what content they can promote and what content they can't promote. And that strikes me as so close to First Amendment interests that the only thing worse than having Facebook censor us is having the Democratic National Committee censor us. So I'm just not sure that going straight at algorithms, unless we do something like Francis Fukuyama has proposed, which is to say, you have to have more than one algorithm. You have to give people the choice of five or six algorithms with uh, completely separated from the company that does the aggregation of the whole social graph. That, I, I continue to think that's the more attractive uh, solution here rather than something that says uh, you need to do whatever pleases people in Washington this month. And fair enough. I think you're right that just because they're not smart on everything, they can't legislate at all. I just think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to to put to make them smart on these issues. Obviously, we all do some of this work trying to make sure that the proposals that are going in, the the provisions are are smart and and well written and stand the test of time. I mean, GDPR is a perfect example of how legislation can have sort of good intentions, but can, I think, even in their estimation, have some faults. But to your point on free speech as well, there's also some, there's some new uh, concept that's out there now. Renee DiResta, uh, a researcher, has called it free reach, which is basically, you know, what we're trying, what they're trying to do here, right? Not, not regulating free speech. We're not telling you what you can and can't say, but it's about regulating whether how far your voice carries. And that is, I think, very interesting. It, it is interesting. I think it's complete BS at the end of the day, though, because I, if Facebook can guarantee that nobody sees my posts except my, then it's basically shut me down as a contributor to the uh, national conversation. And it doesn't matter whether they deplatform me or just say we're limiting you to communication with your family members. Indeed, I think what we are struggling toward, though, is something like that. The story that we uh, probably won't cover in detail about Facebook's AI for hate speech, in which the Wall Street Journal says, not surprisingly, oh, it's not working, and they're a bunch of bozos, it actually demonstrates that it's kind of working, but working because of a sort of sneaky thing that, that, that is happening. AI is flagging stuff as hate speech. It may or may not be hate speech. There's a bunch of mistakes. But what AI does, what an AI flag does, is it just gets really reduced in reach. It doesn't get banned which means that the people who've been harmed by that determination, by people whose speech has been deprecated, probably don't even know it. And so there aren't a lot of complaints. Uh, and what we're going to see, I suspect, and this, I, I, I think, goes to the cleverness of the solution that says we, we ought to go after reach, not speech, is that by hiding the censorship in ways that people can't easily see, you reduce people's ability to complain about it and you 
dim diminish the the antibodies that otherwise would be very strong in the political uh, sphere. So uh, that's my guess about where we will go if we don't do something else about uh, regulation. We'll just beat up the, the platforms until they start uh, hiding what they're doing uh, from us. Nate, you look like you want to jump in, so you've, you're free to. Not at all. I'm just okay. enjoying the, the conversation <laughs> from the, the sidelines. The, <laughs> enjoying the rant. Okay, so <laughs> let's, let's move to a new rant. Uh, this one, uh, boy, uh, this feels, actually sort of feels good. Microsoft is folding LinkedIn in China. They've, they've finally realized, I think, that they're not making that much money because China squeezed them on the money, made them sell it basically to a bunch of Chinese nationals. And then, and now they're squeezing them both in terms of what they can say and in the reputational harm that Microsoft is suffering because of LinkedIn censorship. Uh, Dimitri, this feels overdetermined. Well, uh, so first of all, they're not fully pulling you out. They're still leaving sort of the jobs and resume pieces of LinkedIn online. They're basically removing all the social networking features because let's face it, it's impossible to run a social networking site in China because they mandate that you censor everything out on a huge array of topics to include Winnie the Pooh because it's used as a, as a way to refer to she. So it's not surprising in a way. It's surprising that it took them so long. They're sort of the last major U.S. social network still remaining in China. And clearly they made the decision that it was no longer tenable. And they, as you said, they weren't making all that much there for all the headaches that they were receiving and it was time to pull out. It just goes to show you that doing business in China, particularly in the tech space, is becoming more and more impossible. And I think more and more companies are realizing that this is uh, a dead end. Yeah. Well, it's getting hard for the, tech, for the Chinese tech companies to do business in China, too. That's what's kind of fun. Nate Meituan, which is basically the, uh, the Grubhub of China, got fined. I, it's like the third or fourth or the fifth uh, hundred, multi-hundred million dollar uh, fine they've gotten for, I think it's self-preferencing. And they've actually, they and Didi probably, uh, although they don't make the biggest headlines, have had the worst experience with the Chinese government. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think a lot of it has forced focused on this forced exclusivity practice that that effectively block, in some cases, competitors or allow them to leverage payments out of those who get the preference and and end up dominating the market. And it's you know abundantly clear at this point that China is using its antitrust laws. It's dusted these things off and is going after some of these companies. And I think. A couple of points here that it's important to, to remember. One is these do appear to be aimed at practices that violate domestic antitrust laws. There are similar concerns leveled at, at U.S. tech companies here in the United States and in Europe. So this practice is not exactly favored around the world. And so on paper, China has, has a basis to do it. I think people are looking for more nefarious explanations and trying to understand what's motivating China to, to do this. And a lot of focus has been, at least in part, on, on the desire of the, the Communist Party to reassert its authority and basically take some of these you know, powerful tech executives down a notch or two and limit their power domestically. And if you set aside the government that's doing it and the system that all of this is rolling into and up to, you know, you yourself were decrying, you know, big tech's influence in Congress and their ability to block some of these regulatory actions here in the U.S. And I think, in my view, on some level, this is a legitimate 
um, concern that the amassment of this kind of wealth and this kind of power in the hands of private individuals gives them potential leverage over policy processes that can produce outcomes that aren't necessarily good for the people. The problem here is the people who are trying to keep them down are not exactly um, doing the people's bidding either. So it becomes a double-edged sword. But uh, but I think objectively, the use of antitrust laws for these purposes is not something that, that should trouble people as long as it's being done in a, a system that is is democratic and law-abiding and so on and so forth, which obviously is lacking here. Yes, uh, although highly discretionary in terms of which who you decide to punish and how bad you punish them yep. for antitrust violations. Uh, I guess this would be a good time for me to say that Dimitri has spent the week founding the Alperovich Institute. I spent the week releasing CyberTunes, T-O-O-N-Z, which is an effort to express cyber policy in cartoon form. And the first of the cartoons had the Europeans coming to China and the United States and saying, you need to adopt GDPR exactly as written in order, otherwise we'll bankrupt all your tech companies. And both of them say, no, that's ridiculous. That's a violation of our sovereignty. And then the U.S. goes on to say, plus it's so discretionary, you could just pick any company and they go, they're, everybody's in violation. You could just hammer them with fines until you've broken them. And the Chinese representative says, oh, okay, we'll do it. Uh, <laughs> and I think antitrust law is a little that way as yeah. once you write it in this kind of not tied consumer welfare form, it's really just about writing a regulatory regime just for one company or for a couple of companies. Uh, I, and that means you can write it tougher or easier, depending on how you feel about that company. And that that's very appealing for the Chinese government, I suspect. Yeah. All right. Dimitri. So, yes. yes, Dimitri. Uh, and by the way, it's very appealing to the big tech companies. They love GDPR yes. because, because it makes it much easier for them to comply. They have the resources to do so and much harder for anyone to come in as a small startup and replace them. Yes, no, that should be the next Cybertune in which the big tech uh, looks at their competitive replacement and says, yeah, good luck with that. Okay. Uh, so if China is having all these problems... How come we're apparently losing the AI battle, according to the Pentagon's software chief, Nate? Chief. Yes, exactly. I, 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 it was a very dramatic statement that, that we had completely lost, that we're, we're just toast. And it, it was so out of keeping with what I thought was the state of affairs, which is not necessarily good, but not completely gone, that yeah. I wondered about this guy. So what's your thought about the plausibility of the statement that uh, we've already lost, we might as well surrender? Yeah, I, I don't, uh, I guess two things. First, I don't know that uh, there have been any recent developments to justify this change in the assessment. It sounds like in a particular individual just who just happens to be exceedingly pessimistic about things. The second thing I would say is, <clears throat> even if we've lost at this point, I don't know that that means you give up and you have to keep fighting and <laughs> doing the best you can. I do think that even some people who are disputing this kind of thing publicly, privately, are very pessimistic about our long-term prospects here. And China has some significant advantages working in its favor in this space. And I think most people, at least privately, believe that the U.S. has fallen behind and that it's going to be hard to catch up. But I think my, I, my view is the two things we have to do going forward are, the first, take care of our own side of the equation 
and make sure we're we're advancing as fast as we can. And the second thing is, <clears throat> from a commercial standpoint, even if China, quote unquote, wins the race or wins the competition, they, they still have to contend with a pretty significant and growing trust deficit globally. So out on the commercial market for these things, it's not a given that they're going to get widespread adoption across the globe with this technology. And so I think that the U.S. should and others should be looking at ways to to leverage that trust deficit and and get a leg up ourselves. So I, the fellow who made this statement, Nicolas Chayan, I, and I give it a slightly French pronunciation because he actually was a French national, as far as I can see, until he came to Washington after 9-11. He's done some start, a bunch of startups that I was not familiar with. So he, and he was appointed by the Trump administration to his current job. So quitting the Biden administration is easier than falling off a log. And so I, it may be that it, he just decided that if he was going to leave anyway, he might as well go out with a, uh, a bang because it would, it would be good for his uh, uh, career on the long run. So, yeah, it's not at all clear. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't buy the premise, particularly in the commercial space that we're behind. There may be a few areas like facial recognition where the Chinese have invested a lot, don't have any ethics uh, restrictions and probably very good, probably the best in the world at using face, facial recognition to identify Uyghurs, for example. I really don't doubt that, but it doesn't extend to other areas. We're so far ahead in self-driving. We're so far ahead in so many areas. It doesn't mean that we'll always stay ahead and they're investing and they're a formidable comp- competitor, but with some of the crackdowns that we've seen on the, in the tech sector in China, I think it's gonna be actually slightly more complicated for them to catch up. And there'll yep. be less investment going in, both domestically and foreign investment as a result. Where I think he has a better point, perhaps, is that the Pentagon procurement system is quite broken. Of course, that's not a surprise to anyone. It's been broken for decades. And our investment in these hugely expensive weapons platforms is probably questionable and uh, may not give us uh, the return that we're hoping for. So I think he may have some points there, but certainly not on the overall AI competition. Going back to his intentions and the reasons why he's making the statement. So part of it may be that he's leaving an administration to which he was not actually appointed. But it's also that there's something to be said for spurring action through having this conversation about how far behind we are. Right. I think Mm -hmm. there's I think the United States, right, always assumes sort of superiority and that we're the leader. We are the best. We have the best technology. But I think that there's something to be said for how far we fall. And in terms of funding R&D within the federal government, how much we're investing in different technologies and how, you know, how other countries have put a lot more Uh, investment into AI and perhaps quantum, although I will argue I think quantum were ahead of China. So I think that it's important to know we, if we have the conversation that we are so ahead, we could get complacent. And so the intent might have been to just spur a discussion, similarly to how I think Ms. Rosenworcel's comment about starting policy on 6G is sort of a call to action to try and get more things moving in that direction. I think in both of these areas, we need uh, focus and investment. Yep. So having China regulate stuff doesn't mean they're successfully regulating. I was struck by that when they discovered that all those crypto miners they had 
banned. We're actually still using state-owned facilities to to mine for uh, cryptocurrency. Nate, is there a broader lesson in China discovering that their regulation actually didn't work the first time around? I don't think so. I think it, I thought you just put this in here for humor, Stuart, <laughs> and to twist the knife in, in China's side. Um, but at a minimum, they want to check and make sure they're not subsidizing things that they've banned and be pretty sure yep. that's not happening, which they apparently failed to do here. Yep. Okay. Uh, this is n- not quite as funny. Uh, a, a WhatsApp is rolling forward on end-to-end encryption. You said might say, what well, I thought they were doing that for like years, but they are encrypting backups, which were by default, so were actually couldn't be encrypted. Uh, now you can, uh, as they roll out this capability, which means that a lot of stuff that uh, law enforcement got just by waiting for stuff to roll into your uh, backup, they're not going to get. But the reaction so far has been kind of muted, Tatiana. It has been. And I think once once the full impact of this is felt in the law enforcement community, you're going to see a lot of called arms again to the lawful access debate, whether or not we should encrypt. The, the debate, I think, will start coming back again because we've sort of taken a pause, it seems, because we, to be fair, weren't getting anywhere. And after perhaps we're done with all this antitrust debate on Facebook and whether we should uh, regulate their algorithms, I think we're going to come back again to encryption. I'm with you. I'm surprised that they weren't encrypting their backups. I, you know, we always say you need to encrypt your data uh, at rest and in motion. So I, I'm surprised that their their backups weren't encrypted. It also is optional, by the way. So you have to opt in to encrypt your backup. So I think that'll allow law enforcement enough of enough insight into some of these documents when they're on the when they finally do filter through to be seen. Because I highly doubt there's going to be a high uptake of that opt in. Well, except except among criminals. But I mean, even I mean, like it depends on what criminal, right? Like if you're talking about a murderer, right? Like what's the likelihood that he or she, most likely he, thought ahead to encrypt his backups before murdering whoever he was? It's the child porn guys again, right? uh, Who will be? I mean, yeah, but I think what's really important is that we need to continue talking about the ways in which we can work with encryption and uh, not break security in order for law enforcement to be able to do their their job that also protects the nation, right? Yeah. We, both groups uh, have, have good aims. And so we need to figure out a way in which to bridge that divide because we don't want to leave law enforcement with no uh, opportunity at all to collect information or be able to lawfully access information. But it just shouldn't be through breaking encryption or through building back doors into products. All right. So uh, this is also, I think, a humor, uh, a a light, humorous interruption. The Missouri governor has vowed to prosecute the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for clicking the right key on to, to disclose code on uh, their website, which it turned out revealed social security numbers that had been hidden in code, but which were accessible if you just uh, said, please show me the uh, the code. Is there Anybody, Tatiana, uh, who can defend what the Missouri governor has said about this? <laughs> no. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> Absolutely not. This is literally a master class in what not to do to have better cybersecurity. Yeah. Like, 
I mean, it literally, it's going after people who are exposing vulnerabilities, which is key to having more secure networks, going after reporters and the First Amendment, apparently. Well, and reporters who who actually reported the problem first before exposing it and waited mm-hmm. until they had changed their code Correct. to say, look at this. And, yeah. and uh, so- I mean, it's the, it, like the, they did everything. It's about, it's a masterclass in tech illiteracy. Uh, speaking of Congress, not shouldn't, maybe shouldn't legislate in certain areas. I mean, it's really like, there's no defense and he is going to get skewered um, as yep. he already is. Yeah, it seems to me that that's right. Uh, okay, quick, uh, a couple of quick uh, stories, and then we will wrap up. Uh, the uh, I reported last week that one of the members of the magistrates' revolution, uh, one of the revolting magistrates, had written a very creative and slightly weird decision about what the meaning of the Stored Communications Act is. Uh, essentially, Stored Communications Act says you, it's very hard. Uh, to turn over any communications uh, except to the U.S. government by subpoena. And in this case, the Republic of Gambia, of the, the Gambia, asked for a whole bunch of communications about the Myanmar persecution of the Rohingya uh, so that they could take them to, to the Burmese government to court. And Facebook said, I'm sorry, the Stored Communications Act says we can't give you stored communications uh, uh, because you're a foreign government. And the magistrate said, oh, yeah, you would think so. You had already deplatformed all of the people who had uh, uh, sent these communications, and you kept the communications. You weren't keeping them for them because they don't get. They've been deplatformed, so you are not storing communications for them. You're storing them for yourself, and that's different. And so, cough them up. Uh, and now Facebook has said, uh, "Oh, that's ridiculous," and written a uh, an appeal. I have to say, I didn't think the Pellet brief was completely persuasive. It's okay. You'd expect it to be really good. But I, I actually think that this suggests that the um, Stored Communications Act might be in more trouble than you would have thought from uh, listening to the outcry after this decision. So the, uh, the update is simply that now there's an appeal brief. This is going for sure to uh, the district court. This is going to the, I guess, the D.C. circuit. So it'll be a long haul, but it's a closer call than I expected. Dimitri, the White House has a plan to stop em- government employees from getting fished, and it involves using basically SD cards. So we talked on the, one of the last podcasts about how you have these services that are springing up to try to intercept these two-factor authentication codes that are software-based. They're not based in hardware, so either SMS or your Google Authenticator app by uh, simply calling you up and and asking for that code and then plugging into the website. So hardware-based authentication keys are a great way to prevent. However, they're not a panacea. In fact, we've had one in the government for a very long time. It was called a CAC card. For those yep. uh, that were in the military, a variety of different threat actors have targeted them with malware by basically siphoning off the, the code and then doing the man in the mill on the authentication channel. So it's not a panacea. We should be well aware of that. It will not stop all phishing, but it's going to significantly make it harder for the adversaries to do it in the future. Yeah, even though the uh, the SD cards were made in China, I still don't get that. But there it is. That's uh, that's Google's choice, at least. But I, you're right. On the whole, you have to kind of get used. To, I, I use them, and you have to get used to using them because uh, it's easy to mislay them or to put them on your keychain and then wreck them. Uh, and and um, getting an SD card into a a phone is a trick. Uh, you can't really 
jam it in. You kind of have to have uh, near-field communication. So uh, there's a learning curve to it, but it, well, it luckily is Luckily in government, you're not allowed to use phones, so we're good. Yeah, ah, there, there we go. go. There you go. Yeah, they're, they're used to that good old-fashioned technology like a guard. <laughs> okay, and I, I, I feel obliged to... to talk about this. A bunch of the usual cryptographers will always rise to the occasion to talk about how bad it is to try to come up with any accommodation of law enforcement in uh, uh, tech, communications tech, have written a long report that they started before Apple started selling out uh, people on uh, client-side scanning uh, for child porn. And they've written a very thoughtful piece and a bunch of op-eds surrounding it uh, about all the problems with trying to satisfy law enforcement by doing scanning for particular content on the client, on the phone, as opposed to when it reaches the server. And they're all persuasive at some level. They say this isn't really as good for law enforcement as you might think. It's not really good for security. It creates a lot of complexity. And I think what they just demonstrate is, yeah, this is a compromise and everybody compromises and it might not be the best compromise, although it's probably from Apple's point of view, the best compromise. And that's why we are still debating it. So if the store, the white paper they wrote was maybe 20, 25 pages, definitely worth reading. There is almost no surprises in it. So that's why we saved it for the end. Okay. That is it for the day. Tatiana, Dimitri, Nate, thank you for joining us. If you want to send comments, if you're listening to this and you want to send comments, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a review. Make fun of us. Make fun of our guests. Make fun of the host. And we will read it on the next episode. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 379 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.